Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Safe Ireland and Airbnb, working in partnership to support domestic violence survivors across Ireland. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today is the UN's International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which marks the start of 16 days of action on that very important issue. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about, to be very specific about it, male violence against women and how we urgently need to reframe that conversation. As you know, it's a subject we have covered a lot on this podcast over the last several years, but it's not something we've ever talked to men about, which is what we're going to do today. When you consider that the perpetrators of the vast majority of this violence are men, then it seems obvious that the real transformation and progress is going to involve talking to men about their role in eliminating violence against women and girls. So we're bringing you a fascinating conversation today with two men on the front line of this issue. And one of those is Jackson Katz. The same guys who are abusive to their wives or girlfriends and people say, oh, he has a bad temper, he lost his cool. In the workplace, he might be really angry at his boss, but he doesn't grab his boss and throw him up against the wall because he knows there's consequences. He knows that even though he's angry, it's inappropriate and unacceptable, and he will face consequences if he acts on that anger and frustration in that context. But why does that same guy in his relational context lose control all of a sudden? The answer to that, if there is one answer, is there's a belief system that underlies his legitimation of his own abusive behavior That was Jackson Katz there. And just to say that nearly one in three women have been abused uh, in their lifetime. And in times of crises, those numbers obviously rise as seen during the COVID-19 pandemic and recent humanitarian crises, including conflicts and climate disasters. A new report from UN Women, based on data from 13 countries since the pandemic, shows that two in three women reported that they or a woman they know experienced some kind of violence. But as we know, all of this exists on a spectrum from catcalling and groping in nightclubs and women feeling unsafe as they walk home all the way through to domestic violence and horrific murders such as Sarah Everard in London earlier this year. And if we really want to tackle this as a society, because tackling it is good for everyone and not just for women and girls, if we really want to try and do it, we need to look much wider than just at individual atrocities and individual perpetrators. We need to examine our culture, our media culture, our sports culture, celebrity culture, porn culture, peer culture. We need to look at the lessons about manhood and at the social norms that pervade that culture because it's not about individual monsters and I'm using air quotes there. It's about the society that is producing these abusive men generation after generation across class, race 
and ethnicity. The truth is, as people in this movement say, the truth is that men have been erased from so much of the conversation around this issue. And the issue, in fact, is something they're absolutely central to. So erasing the central characters, which is often the, the, the situation when it comes to the narrative around male violence against women, if we erase the central characters, the status quo is going to remain the same. So when we're talking about this stuff, we need to ask different questions. We need to ask questions such as, why are the people who abuse women overwhelmingly likely to be men? How is the socialisation of men and boys leading to these outcomes? Why is domestic violence such a huge issue among men? Why do adult men sexually abuse little children? Why have organisations such as scouts, religions, gymnastics, swimming teams have been places where girls and boys have been abused? Why do so many men rape women? What is the role of schools, religions and family? And a really important question, what are the forces that keep men quiet about all of these things? So this is a way of centering men in an issue that they are very central to. Now, regular listeners will know that we don't often have men on the podcast. And I think the last time was probably in the run up to the repeal the eighth referendum when we had men on talking about their experiences of abortion. And today we thought it was a good idea to talk to men about what men can do to end male violence against women and to help uh, contribute to that societal change that I've just been describing. We thought it might be a good way for us to hear a different perspective and give us all some ideas about how to talk about the subject with the men and the boys in our lives. So let me introduce you to the two men I spoke to for the podcast today. Jackson Katz has for years been a major figure in the growing global movement of men working to promote gender equality and prevent gender violence. He's co-founder of the Multiracial Mixed Gender Mentors in Violence Prevention Programme. He created and led the first large-scale prevention programmes in the North American sports culture and all branches of the US military. He's the author of numerous articles and two books, including the bestseller, called The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help. He has a TEDx talk, which has been viewed over five million times, and I can't recommend it more highly. It's called Violence Against Women is a Men's Issue. So I'd urge you to watch that if you can. Um, our second guest today is Ryan Hart, who, along with his brother Luke, has been sharing his story to raise awareness of coercive control and men's violence against women. On the 19th of July 2016, Claire and Charlotte Hart, Ryan's mother and sister, were murdered by his father. The brothers subsequently wrote about their family story in a book called Remembered Forever. They've trained thousands of police officers, NHS professionals, council staff and the general public about identifying, understanding and ending domestic abuse. Along with his brother, Ryan has worked closely with the national media on domestic abuse reporting. He's a white ribbon ambassador and refuge champion speaking out against male violence towards women and children. So I hope you're going to find this useful and interesting. And as I said, I hope it brings on the conversation and perhaps reframes it a little bit. Here it is, my conversation with Jackson Katz and Ryan Hart in this episode where we're talking to men about men's violence against women and girls. 
Jackson, I'm going to come to you first. We're having this episode to mark the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which is today, Thursday, 25th of November. Can you tell me, as someone who's worked in this area for a long time, why it's still the case that even though men make up the vast majority of perpetrators of violence against women, domestic violence and abuse across the spectrum, it's still considered a women's issue? And also, can you tell us why that's not helpful and, in fact, how it perpetuates the already terrible situation? Sure. Well, thank you, Roisin, for having me on. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be part of this discussion with you and your listeners. Well, I think this is how power works. Shifting accountability off of the group who's doing the abusive behavior and putting it onto the group that's experiencing it is, is, is a function of how power works. One, and one of the things that I've written a lot about and spoken about for years is the ways in which we use language to talk about this subject keeps us in the old paradigm. The old paradigm is these are women's issues. When I say these, domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual abuse of children, these are women's issues that some good men help out with. One of the ways we're kept in that old paradigm is through our use of language. So, for example, you'll, you'll often hear people use passive language to talk about this. Let's say how many women in Ireland were abused last year rather than how many men abused women or how many teenage girls in Ireland got pregnant last year rather than how many men and boys impregnated teenage girls. I mean, the use of passive language has a very powerful political effect. The political effect is it shifts the focus off of the group with more power onto the group with less. And again, I think it's important to say that's not sloppy thinking. It's power functioning through stealth or invisibility or the shifting of accountability off of itself. The person speaking, the, the, the speaker is not necessarily conscious of this. Like the, 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 a man or a woman or another person who is using that language isn't consciously saying, how can I absolve men of responsibility and accountability for abuse? Oh, one of the ways I'll do it is use passive language and talk about what's happening to women rather than who's doing it to them. But that's the effect. One, one last point, the, the term violence against women itself is problematic. Violence against women is a passive phrase. It's like, it's a bad thing that happens to women, but nobody's doing it to them. They're just experiencing it, kind of like the weather. But if you insert the active agent, men, you have a new phrase, men's violence against women. And by the way, I know that some men can get really defensive with that level of honest language. And I think a lot of women in the field, the domestic and sexual violence field, have known this for a long time. And so instead of because they don't want men to be defensive because they have to have good relations with men, whether it's in with law enforcement, if they're in the domestic and sexual violence you know, programs, they want good relations with law enforcement. They, they need political support from you know, political leadership. And so they need funding for programs. And, and, and also women in their intimate lives, their friendships, their, you know, maybe they're married to a man. They don't want to always get into arguments and, you know, by calling out men. So a lot of women have realized, okay, using passive language, using gender neutral, you know, uh, language, maybe that's the safer way to go about it. And I appreciate that. And I'm not criticizing women, but I think one of the roles that men can play, like myself or Ryan or other men, is we can say some of these things just flat out. This is men's violence against women. Men are doing this to, to women. Men are doing it to other men. I don't see as a man that that's uh, unfair. I think it's just factual. And I also think as a man, when I hear about the, the things that men are doing and continue to do to women and other men, I think not like not all men are you blaming me unfairly. I'm not, I'm a good guy. That's like so juvenile. I think my response is, is like, okay, as a man, what can I do about this? I'm a man. I don't think this is a good status quo. I don't accept the status quo. What can I do as a man? Very similar to racism. If you're a white person and you're, not, you know, you don't want to participate in, in the system of racism. 
instead of being defensive and saying, I'm not a racist, it's not my problem. It's like, okay, what can you do as a white, if you're a white person, what can you do as a white person to work against racism and for racial justice in a way that's constructive rather than hunker down in a defensive crouch and deny that you're part of the problem. Mm. Uh, Jackson, I'm going to ask you something before I come to Ryan about, uh, I know it's a question that you find kind of, you're bemused by when I ask you why you're involved in this and why you as a man are involved. Um, I think people will be expecting to hear that some big, massive personal reason, which I know for some men involved in this movement that there is. But for you, you kind of more question why I'd even ask you that, right? Which I really like. (laughs) Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, when I started as a young man, being public activists on this subject matter, I used to respond to people's questions about why I got involved. I would say, I'll answer your question, but I want to say the women and girls that I care about can't even walk down the street at night to get a soda at, you know, eight o'clock at night because they're so afraid of, you know, sexual violence from men. And you're asking me why I'm doing something about it or why there's something special about me or unique about my situation. It's like, why don't we ask the millions and billions of men who aren't speaking out? Why aren't they? And the other thing I, I would say is if all it takes, and I appreciate I appreciate Ryan's activism and and strength. Believe me, I do. I greatly appreciate it. But if all it takes for a man to speak out on these matters, to be publicly a leader in whatever sphere, is having women and girls close to them who have been assaulted by other men, then we would have billions of men in the streets because every single man I know has women and girls close to us who have been victims of sexual harassment, sexual assault, domestic violence. And, and, and the daily indignities of sexism and misogyny. Every single man I know has women and girls close to them. But very few men, relatively speaking, have been speaking out. So the, to me, the bigger question is, why aren't there more men speaking out? What are some of the impediments to that, the obstacles to that? Why are so many men afraid of other men, afraid of the disapproval of other men? And, and as a result, how can we, how can we by, by thinking about what are some of those impediments, how can we change that? But I will say, in answer to your question, Roisin, there wasn't one incident in my life. There wasn't one woman in my life. It was more as a young man, as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, starting to absorb just how pervasive the problems of men's violence against women are, are and you know, were and are in the world. And then I, I was kind of outraged by it, to be honest with you. When I started learning about how pervasive uh, domestic and sexual violence were, I was like, this is so obviously wrong. And why aren't there more men? I saw women speaking up and I was like, you know, organizing on you know, university campus, my university, I saw women organizing, I saw women active, and I was impressed by their leadership. But I was like, why aren't there men out there? Why aren't there men speaking out? It was so obvious to me that this was a men's issue. And and I just started uh, standing up and speaking out. And then, of course, as a result of doing that, you start hearing stories from women, you start hearing, you know, whether it's friends or a girlfriend at the time and other people, and you start realizing, oh, my God, this is a much bigger problem than even in my own life, in my own family, in my own you know, friendship circles that I really hadn't been checked into at that point. And it just became more and more, you know, for me, more and more of a passion. Um, and, then it, and then it was obvious to me from the earliest days, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I had a really good education from the earliest days of university, I connected domestic and sexual violence to everything else, to racism, to colonialism, to heterosexism. In other words, the intersectional, we didn't even have the term intersectional back then, but the intersectional nature of these issues was obvious to me really quickly. And and I was one of these young guys who wanted to change the world, right? Young people who's like looking at the world and saying, we got all these problems. We got to deal with these problems. And I realized that domestic and sexual violence were marbled into every other system of inequality and injustice. And that if you really wanted to change the world, you know, and, and, and the, the systems that created 
inequalities, vast inequalities in some cases, domestic and sexual violence and gender inequality that underlies it is at the heart of whole other series of uh, systems of oppression. And I got that and, and, and I ran with that. Well, I'm glad you got it and I'm glad you ran with it. And I read about a guy recently in England uh, trying to set up a million man march against male violence against women and he got 52 uh, sign-ups. So I think your question about where are all the men, and we'll talk about maybe the forces that keep men silent on this issue a bit later, but I want to bring in Ryan here. And uh, Jackson, I think, makes a really good point that men shouldn't need some kind of personal experience to involve themselves in this discussion, just as like I shouldn't, as a white woman, need any kind of experience of racism to call it out and to get involved in in being an anti-racist but um because it's something that happens to our fellow humans it's relevant to all of us in society but ryan you do have a very personal reason for the work and your activism can you tell us about that yeah sure um so i think i'm the perfect example of how violence against uh women well men's violence against women has impacts on men too and children uh so i had an abusive father I wouldn't have called it abusive growing up. We just thought he was a very angry and pleasant man. We had no other life that we'd lived to be able to compare it to, to be able to understand what we were going through. So we just, you know, got our heads down, tried to manage day to day. Couldn't really see a way out except getting good jobs in the distant future, earning money and, and running away from him. And so that's what we did. We just um, did our best to make a life from where we found ourselves did our best to mitigate his abuse best we could, try and make our mum and our sister's life as, as best as we could until we were able to save up money. And in 2016, we did manage to, my brother and I, we'd started work a few years earlier, got enough money to rent a small house to run away to, broke our sister and our mum out of the house, fled to this new place. It was only five miles down the road. We thought we're not really in any danger. We just want to get away from the man, just thinking that, her own little place would be all she needed to, to start her her life and, and sort of start the process of divorce and just have a amicable split. We were completely unaware of his controlling nature and all the red flags and really what was, you know, blaring at us in the face. We got mum and Charlotte free, my sister Charlotte. Um, Luke and I went back, went back to work thinking that, you know, our, our new lives about to start. Five days later, uh, my mum was meeting my father and in a swimming pool car park before she went swimming. My sister Charlotte was there. And the aim was really just to exchange a few things that, you know, we forgot to take with us when we left, because we left in a hurry. And he had been very amicable over email in the days leading up to it to try and arrange a meetup. He was also accepting responsibility for everything he'd done. We thought, you know, he was he was on board that, you know, things had to change and that we were going in a different direction. But that wasn't his plan, you know, he was armed with a sawn-off shotgun and he killed a mum and my sister that morning in that car park and then he took his own life afterwards. And that was, I think, a point in Luke, my brother Luke, and, and my life where we, for the first time, were, like, confronted with, you know, what were we living with? Uh, this came out of, like, came out of nowhere. It was seemed to come out of nowhere because we had always believed that escalating violence was a sign of danger that violence is the only sign of danger and that violence is the only thing you could present to somebody to justify you wanting to, to flee or to drastically change your life. That was what we were looking for. But in fact, it was control that we should have been looking for, that father's escalating control, the measures he was putting in place, the, his behaviours, his attitude, his beliefs towards us and what how he valued us or didn't value us. 
and how he saw himself. And so we had no idea what we were embarking on when we fled from the house. We had no idea what danger we were in. And then following the murders, I think everything started to unravel. We started to learn more about what had we experienced. And it turns out we experienced textbook coercive control. And it started getting us thinking, you know, how how could we have lived textbook coercive control and have not known about it? Like clearly, you know, the experts know the red flags. There's a lot of people out there who know what to look for and the dangers and, and what help victims need. It didn't get to us. It didn't get to us. And that, I think, was the start of our journey to realise that, you know, we we have something now that we can share. Um, and hopefully we can get that information into the households that need to hear it. We can get that information to the professionals who hopefully a survivor's perspective can help them, you know, more deeply understand the issue. Jackson said, you know, women have been talking about this for decades and it just it hadn't got through to us as victims. And that was quite surprising and shocking. That's what started us on this journey, is knowing we have something to offer. One of the things that you speak about, your father, uh, and something you came to sort of understand afterwards, was two words that stand out for me, resentment and entitlement. These are two things that you didn't realise were at play. And it might be interesting to hear you both talk about the wider societal sort of examples of that, or how society feeds into that and allows those things in men to perpetuate and then to have these outcomes like in your own very tragic situation. Jackson, what's your response there to to that about resentment and entitlement? And now it's everywhere in terms of how we socialize men and boys in a way. Sure. Well, I mean, in the what used to be called the battered women's movement starting in the 1970s and then the batterer intervention movement, in other words, working with men who were court mandated for abusive behavior, we've learned so much. One of the key insights is that is that there's an ideology or belief system that underlies the abusive behavior, that it's not about impulse control. It's not about anger management. It's not about, you know, he's got a bad drinking problem and he just goes off in a way that's unexplainable. If there's a belief system that underlies most abuse, not all abuse, but most abuse. And then, by the way, that, yes, some people do have impulse control problems. I'm not saying that they're, you know, they, they can't coexist. But there's a belief system that underlies the abuse. And the belief system tends to be, and again, I'm making a general statement, and I know that there is, you know, there's nuances to it, potentially, is that men in a heterosexual context are entitled to certain things. Their emotional needs get met first. They're the ones who have to be centered emotionally and, 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 and in other ways. And if the woman isn't compliant with that, if she's not doing what she needs to do to serve those needs that he has identified, then he's going to make her do it. He's going to coerce her to do it. That coercion could be physical. It could be a financial. There's all different kinds of ways that he can do that. But it's a belief that he has he is entitled to certain things that he is going to make her comply with. And that's, by the way, true with, with sexual assault as well. There's a male sexual entitlement. A lot of men will push forward and and continue, for example, to have sex with a woman who doesn't want to have sex with him because at a certain point he's he said, I am entitled to this and I'm going to get what I want. Even if, and by the way, most men, for example, on university campuses in the, in the States – and I'm sure this is true in, in Ireland as well, who commit rape don't see themselves in any way as rapists. They think that what they're doing is legitimate. They think that what they're doing might be sexually aggressive, but they think that it's within the expected and normative range of what, quote unquote, men do in a heterosexual context and even in a, in a gay context. But the point, the point is, if you don't address the underlying beliefs about entitlement, about male centrality, about men's needs being met first, if you just talk about the behavior 
I think you're kidding yourself. I mean, for example, the same guys who are abusive to their wives or girlfriends and people say, oh, he has a bad temper. He lost his cool. In the workplace, he might be really angry at his boss, but he doesn't grab his boss and throw him up against the wall because he knows there's consequences. He knows that even though he's angry, it's inappropriate and unacceptable, and he will face consequences if he acts on that anger and frustration in that context. But why does that same guy in his relational context lose control all of a sudden? The answer to that, if there is one answer, is there's a belief system that underlies his legitimation of his own abusive behavior. I think that some of the key work in terms of preventing domestic and sexual violence is going beneath the behavior itself and talking about the ideologies and the beliefs about, especially about manhood and how men's absorption of these beliefs and the beliefs that we teach boys and young men about manhood. And by the way, not just individuals teaching like parents or teachers, but also the media culture, the sports culture, the social norms of the society. What are we teaching boys and men? And then if we don't, if we don't address that, I think we're kidding ourselves. But if we do address it, I think we have the chance for transformative change. And, and don't we need transformative change? Yes, we do. And that's why I wanted to have um, a different kind of conversation about this. I just want to go back to Ryan, just going back to the resentment and entitlement. And also about how um, your own tragic situation was portrayed in the media afterwards, you know, and what you learned from that. Because I think something Jackson speaks about a lot is that idea that these individual monsters, I'm putting inverted commas over them, are, you know, crawling out of the swamp and doing these things. And oh my God, isn't it really unusual and strange when in fact, as Jackson has very eloquently said, it's part of a belief system in a way. What did you learn about that from your experience, Ryan? Yeah, so touching on the, the media reports, I guess, in the initial first few days and weeks. So it actually comes back to the framing issue that we discussed earlier. So we learned a lot, I think, about how domestic abuse and domestic homicide is framed from some very sort of key words that were chosen to be uh, uh, reported. So one one key one was, so our father, he left behind a murder note, which was full of reasons why he was entitled to do what he was going to do. And he, Jackson said, you know, our father, he actually genuinely believed that he was entitled to do what he was going to do. He, he was, in his mind, acting morally against an insubordinate family. You know, we were the perpetrators, he was a victim. So he left a murder note to describe all of that. What the media picked up on was they called it a suicide note. And that completely changes the framing of the whole situation. It's very quickly, the tragedy that's been reported is not the tragedy of a murder of a woman and child, but a tragedy that a man took his own life. And that was echoed throughout a lot of the reports we saw that, and got to the end of the reports, and we saw countless helplines for male mental health charities. And I don't think I saw a single helpline about domestic abuse charities. And that just sets the tone, really, of, of you know, again, the issue. is It states that the issue here is not about men causing devastating, you know, pain to his, their families, their, their partners. But it's about, you know, what have we done to cause these men to feel so sad that they've taken their own lives? And it just shocked us that that was the narrative that was chosen when clearly there's, like, staring you in the face, there's, like, two dead women here who've just fled from this man and yet that was almost overlooked and in fact actually again just on the media side the stories that were told stories that were five days long it was the day that we left him up to the day that he killed women charlotte as if that was all there was to the story you know everything that was significant was in those five days that's overlooking the lives that mama charlotte had lived the 25 years of abuse they suffered and all those little things 
you know, you don't pick up on them unless unless you really look for them, unless you have experience or you have knowledge on, on it. And I think Luke and I, after going through what we've been through, for the first time we started to read these articles about our own family, there's no one seeing this. And then we look back and uh, previous, uh, well, actually our father was looking back at previous homicide, domestic homicide reports. Um, and so we, uh, you know, looked at what he was looking at and they were all framed the same way. And it was the first time ever that we'd actually noticed this framing and how horrendous it can be. Um, so yeah, that's on the, on the media side. I think we, we think the media has got a very powerful role and they can do a great job at informing correct stereotypes and in rallying people to, to change and take on responsibility and do great things. But they also, if done badly, they can, you know, reinforce incorrect stereotypes. They can shift the focus to the wrong place. Um, and that was what was done, I think, in the early like, days and weeks following following the murders. Um, and then touching on quickly the resentment and entitlement that we mentioned. So I think if, if Luke and I, we tried to boil down, you know, to the, to the root cause, you know, what was it that described why our father was choosing to act the way that he did, not just in the murders, but his entire life. Because um, his murders were not hot-headed, emotional outbursts. He had planned them for, for many, many weeks. And in fact, we had subsequently learned that he planned the murders. He started planning them before we even left him and before we even began to leave him. He was going to kill his entire family because he had lost control of us. We finally had money. We had friends. We had opportunities. So, yeah, his murders were not emotional outbursts. They were not fits of anger. So we tried to boil down, you know, what was it that was causing it? I think we came to, yeah, resentment and entitlement. Not trauma, not a competitiveness or anger or aggression. Like it was, he felt that we owed him. He felt that our mum owed him. And I think those two combined, the resentment was why he chose us as his victims. Because we were the ones that were perpetrating against him. And the entitlement was, I guess, you know, that's the other half of the puzzle. Without that entitlement, he would have had nothing to be resentful for. And so I think tackling those, you know, they're like the kind of, I think, the roots of, of why he chose to do what he did. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if, for most perpetrators, you know, that is at the root of it. Um, and not, as we often see in the media, emotion or rage or revenge. But, but I think that sums it up, resentment and entitlement. The new Safe Ireland Survivor Fund, in partnership with Airbnb, enables Safe Ireland to contribute to sustainable supports for women and frontline services and to provide focused actions for children. You can play a critical role in helping to protect more women and children from abuse. Donate directly to your local domestic violence service or to the national work of Safe Ireland. Go to www.safeireland.ie for more information. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jackson, just coming back to you, just listening to Ryan there, I mean, is a lot of that resonating for you and just going on to what I was saying about this idea of this monster or individualizing these actions as if it's nothing to do with wider society or how we socialize men and boys. Can you talk to me a bit about that and also respond to, to Ryan's story as well? Sure. Um, I, I mean, again, this is the women-led movements against sexual and domestic violence have been teaching us these things for decades now, um, since the 70s. The question is, when are we going to mainstream this knowledge? So often in the United States, for example, when there's domestic violence, homicides and such, or even other forms of violence, it was just a, 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 a situation in, in, in Wisconsin where a group of, uh, where, where a guy drove a, an SUV into a crowd of people in a Christmas parade, killing five people, injuring something like 40 people, including children. And it turns out that he had just been engaged in a domestic uh, assault back in his home. I don't know all the details, but it's just so common. Like the, the, the relationship between domestic violence, if you will, and, you know, school shootings, mass killings. Uh, you know, there's so many connections and overlaps and intersections. And another piece, the January 6th insurrection here in the States where a group of Trumpers and others sort of assaulted the Capitol building and I mean, I've made the direct analogy between that and domestic violence in the sense that in a heterosexual context, typically when a man is using force or the threat of force, it's when he can't gain compliance through non-physical forms of coercion or control, or he uses force to make her do what he couldn't get her to do without using force. Well, what, is, what happened to the insurrection? They couldn't win an election. Donald Trump could not be elected, you know, in a, in a legitimate election. So they were going to use force to take what they couldn't get through the democratic process, which is very directly related to this whole concept of domestic violence. So the other thing is, um, Roisin, I think it's important to talk about the relationship between the, the private sphere of the family and the public sphere. They're all directly related. And yet what happens in the States, for example, and I'm guessing this is true in Ireland, when you have these murders, whether it's domestic violence or other forms of events of murder or mass murder, the people who get on TV, and I certainly know this is the case in the States, tend to be lawyers and law enforcement officials or FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation profilers. They profile criminal behavior. And so the, the whole discourse takes place around the criminal mind what are the rules of evidence and what, what is possible in the, in the likely trial, what is, what's going to come up in the trial. Meanwhile, the people who have the most insight into what really happened are women in the battered women's movement, therapists and counselors and educators who work with men who are abusive, who, who know all about what's really happening. But those people almost never get any airtime. And yet there's so much insight from the battered women's movement about these kinds of behaviors, especially, I have to say, especially about masculinities and violence. In other words, the relationship between how we socialize boys, how we train them to think about themselves in a certain way, in a relational context. This entitlement, for example, is not genetically encoded. It's This is learned behavior. And by the way, if it's learned behavior, it's also taught behavior because learned behavior is a kind of a passive way of talking about it. Taught behavior shifts the onus of responsibility, not to the person who's learning, if you will, but the person who's teaching or the the society that's teaching. And again, that's why we have to t broaden this conversation out into all the ways in which boys growing up, girls growing up, people across the 
the gender and, and sexual identity spectrum are absorbing the teaching of the culture about masculinity, about femininity, about relationships, about sex, about entitlement. And yet think about how little that range of subject matter is taught in the schools, how little it's given airtime in the media conversations about domestic and sexual violence and other issues. And if we continue to see this, and I know that you don't, and, and I know that a lot of us don't, but if we continue to see this as just a criminal justice matter, it's just about the police and it's about failures of, you know, intervention of that system, if you will. And then, and, and don't think about all the ways in which our society shapes gender ideologies that contribute and, and intersecting with everything else. If we don't have that larger conversation, we're just going to be stuck in reactive mode and then running from one individual case of abuse to the next as if they're not somehow connected. I mean, that's it. I, I was listening to one such case today on the radio and I'm just, I don't want to say I'm sick of it because obviously hearing victims tell their stories, it's so heartrending and it's really important that women have a voice and I want them to have a space for that. But it feels almost voyeuristic and almost like domestic abuse porn at this stage because it's, it's textbook. We hear the same, same stories, but we're not asking the questions that you referred to earlier. Why are men raping women? Why are men attacking women? We're, we're not focusing on the perpetrators the way we should be in order to understand and to hopefully prevent. We keep making the victims come out and, and put themselves out uh, raw for all of us to kind of go, shocking, isn't that terrible what happened? But nothing changes. That's what it feels to me like. I want to ask you both about Not All Men, this amazing hashtag that comes up every time some woman is murdered. Or we saw it with the Sarah Everett case, particularly in, in London um, relatively recently. What's your take on hashtag not all men? Because I think we all know it's not all men. I think that's obvious. Yeah, like you said, I think it's, it's obvious. I think um, when you really want to tackle an issue, you have to have to be sensible in how you tackle it. And uh, just passing it off as like, you know, not all men, it's, it's not beneficial. And I think anything that has, as we discussed, like violent, men's violence against women um, and children, it's, it's a societal issue. And when it's a societal issue, everyone can play a part in, in tackling it, regardless whether you're a perpetrator or not. An issue so large, it does involve all of us. Sometimes that, that part could just be about talking about the issue. Silence hinders issues from sort of being addressed and, and getting that, that lens of focus they need. And so I think that's one of the things we try and do with domestic abuse is like, even if you can't do anything, let's just talk about it. Jackson, I know you particularly hate that phrase, hashtag not all men. Yeah, can I, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I have two, there's more than two, but I'll give you two responses to that. The first is that I often say to men in my public lectures and everything else, I'll say, if you have the impulse to say not all men in the conversation about domestic and sexual violence, do yourself a favor and suppress the impulse. You, you sound like an ass. I'm par pardon me. You, it's, it's, it's not a good look. Number one, like you said, Roshin, nobody says it's all men in the first place. So it makes you sound defensive. It also makes you sound like you're not being responsive to what's being said or, or, you know, the experiences of women or others who are, who are so frustrated and sad and angry about how pervasive these problems are. It's like if you're centering yourself in a way that's, it's just not a good look. Don't do it. That's, that's my first thing. But the second thing is, and it builds on, you know, Ryan's comments. This isn't just about the extremes of perpetration, like a domestic homicide or, or a sexual assault. It's like, if we understand this in a sophisticated way, this subject matter, you have to understand it. It's a, there's a continuum of abusive behaviors ranging from, you know, sexist comments on one end to like gang rape on the other. I mean, there's, there's a whole range. And so 
when men say not all men, it's like, okay, have you participated in any way in the culture that helps to produce those extreme acts? And the answer for any man who has, has any self reflexivity or self-awareness has got to be, yes, I have participated in parts of the culture. That doesn't mean I'm guilty of or responsible for the extreme acts of violence, but I am part of a culture and, and some of my behavior contributes to the culture of, of sexual objectification. For example, when men will say something like to each other, like so a guy, couple guys are sitting there in a cafe outside and they see a woman walk by and they say, look at that. They might think, oh, that's just a mind. Oh, what are you saying? I can't even say that. Well, if you think about it, look at that is a way of objectifying a woman and a, you know, even a part of a woman's body, if you will. And if we're honest with ourselves, can we say that that is completely divorced from and not a part of a larger system of objectification of women and misogyny? This is, this is where it gets tricky, both in political change and in educational settings, is that a lot of men get really defensive when you start talking about that. They'll say, a lot of men will say, I would never rape a woman. I would never assault a woman. Or if I saw another man doing that, I would intervene. I would say something. But then when you say, well, would you intervene when you're, you know, the guy that you're working with, your colleague or your coworker or a friend makes a really sexually degrading comment about women or a, or a dismissive comment or a misogynist comment about women with no women present, would you say something then? And they'll, a lot of men will say, oh, I wouldn't say anything there. I mean, that's two things are totally different. Of course, they're not totally different. But when you start broadening out the understanding of what it means to contribute to a rape culture or a culture where battering and abuse is common, you get pushback and you get defensiveness. And so it's always trying to find a sweet spot where you can help men think about the ways that they're contributing to abuse without blaming them for the most extreme acts and getting them so defensive that they're they're not even willing to, you know, open to to, to discussion. One way to do that, by the way, there's many ways, but one way to do it, number one, is to identify it as a leadership act for men to speak up. In other words, it's not about waving your finger at them and telling them they're bad, but it's it's saying, guys, we need more guys who have the courage and the strength and self-confidence to break our silence on these matters, because this is a pathetic situation. The level of domestic and sexual violence that men continue to perpetrate against women and children and other men and themselves. It's just pathetic. And we could do better. And we need to do better. And we need more men who have the courage and the strength to challenge each other. So this is a positive challenge rather than a finger wagging, you know, it's it's invite men into the conversation rather than indict them as potential rapists and abusers. That's one thing. And the other thing is men's violence against women, which is a huge problem globally, is directly related to men's violence against other men and it's and men's violence against themselves. In other words, the same situ- system that produces men who abuse women produces men who abuse other men. I mean, you know how many men are the victims of other men's violence? When it went murder, ag- aggravated assault, assault, attempted murder, gay bashing, bullying, sexual violence. Men are the victims of other men's violence in profound ways. And I think we ne- we need to make those connections. Um, Ryan, when you're working with men and on this subject, is that something, is that kind of that feedback do you get? It is a defensive, it's hard for men to be reflective and to look inside and to look at how they might be part of that uh, broad spectrum that Jackson was talking about there. Uh, so when we do our, our work, uh, speaking at conferences and events, we don't really see many men there. We, we do get asked, you know, like, what solution could there be? And I, I actually think that, you know, we need to bring men on board. That's like the main thing. And to bring anyone on board, you've got to sort of speak their language, you've got to speak to them. I feel that to get to men really, really to respond to this, to, to get them to be self-reflective and understand it, we can't be sort of prescribing what they can't do. You know, men are too scary if they are too competitive and, you know, 
aggressive and do you know dangerous sports and don't do this, don't do that, don't be this. You have to give men something to grow into. Um, and I think that's what helped Luke and I not become our father was like, he had loads of attributes, a whole range of masculine attributes. And initially we thought, you know, don't ever want to be angry. Don't ever want to be aggressive because that's what he was doing and that was bad. But now we realise actually anger and aggression can help you succeed in sport, can help you live a life which you're proud of, that you can accomplish great things. And I think men who live virtuous lives, who are proud of who they are and who they're becoming, they're not the sort of men who go out and, you know, abuse women or degrade women or hurt women and children. And I think when we talk to men, I think that's like one message I want to get across. It's not about, you know, limiting yourself and trying to sort of constrain men. It's about, you know, helping men to to grow. And as Jackson says, like become leaders, because I think that's how we, you know, get sustainable change. It's not by trying to imprison men's attributes and, and what's inside of them, but by letting them be who they are in healthy, productive ways to themselves and everyone around them. Um, and that's something our father was not, you know, he, I think he shared all the same emotions and attributes that Luke and I share, but we use them for entirely different means. And we, see ourselves in the world entirely differently. And then that just comes right back in a circle to, you know, this is not something which is genetically inherited, but this is something which is taught and learned. And I think Luke and I were fortunate that we had, I think our mum, I think, and Charlotte as direct contrast to our father made us see what he was like and, and, and why he was like that. And it's, we saw a different way become men by seeing our mum and our sister which sounds quite strange and surreal but for men to get on board we need to I think yeah the focus has to be not on restraining them but by helping them become you know best the best versions of themselves and I think that's what we can I try and do personally and that's what we try and advocate for I think towards men. It's kind of like I think that's really well said Ryan and it's almost like redefining that word strength Jackson isn't it like the idea of what we have as strong in men can be turned on its head and changed into a strong person can stick up for other women, can call out these things. A strong person can lead and be a role model. You know, there's ways of interpreting that word that will be much healthier for the whole of society, I think. Absolutely. I think this is one of the, this is the Rosetta Stone of this whole uh, transformative work that has to take place is we have to redefine strength, especially in men. This is a bit of a caricature, but the old idea of strength is your ability to impose your will over others, you know? And to me, that's such a ridiculous, cartoonish definition of strength. You know, our country, the United States elected Donald Trump. Donald Trump is like literally a caricature of the, of an old and discredited ideology of, of manhood, as far as I'm concerned. He's an incredibly insecure man who presents himself or performs a certain kind of cartoonish strength. But 75 million people, even after four years of his administration, 75 million people ratified that by voting for him again. The point is, we have a long way to go. We have a lot of work to do because there's still a lot of people who, who buy into this cartoon of manhood. But I think by expanding the definition of strength to include moral courage, social courage, again, I'm not saying we need a superhero model. This is not about superheroes intervening or jumping in to save the day. This is about you know, character and integrity that on a deeper level. And it's not gendered. I mean, qualities of strength, women are strong, men are strong. You know, people who aren't men or women can be strong and are strong. But especially with men, the word strength is so loaded with this baggage of the past that that equates it to physical force or the threat of force. 
and by expanding it, we're asking men to rise to the, you know, to the better angels of their nature. I think a lot of men want to be good people and are good people. I think a lot of men want to, to do better. And, and if you frame it that way, and Ryan said this very, very well, we're not t- trying to restrain men as much as we are trying to help them be better versions of, of themselves. When Ryan says he goes to these conferences, which I've done a lot in my life, and it's a vast majority of people are women, those conferences are important, but those aren't the sites where we really, we need to be going into sports culture, into military culture, into law enforcement, into schools. This needs to be, man, you know, it, it has to be organically built into the normative educational and institutional practices. This can't just be an events that happen in response to tragedies. This has to be built into the educational system. It has to be built into the system of education for future leaders in every domain. I'm convinced that if we can define this as a leadership issue and a leadership imperative for everybody, then we're going to have all kinds of men who would never voluntarily go to a conference on sexual assault or domestic violence, who, would no, who wouldn't be volunteering at the local women's you know, program, but who are leaders and want to be leaders. If we define this as a leadership imperative, then we take that out of their, it's not their choice. If they want to be a leader, they have to do this. Tons of men who would never walk through the door are going to walk through the door, and many of them are going to find themselves inspired by this and use that in a very positive way. Leading on from that to both of you, we have, as I said, a mainly female listenership, so mostly women listening to us, but they obviously women who in all parts of their lives love and work with and um, nurture men and, uh, you know, are partners with men and all sorts of things. So, you know, as I said, we love men on the women's podcast. What would you say to the women listening about the movement that you're both part of? Because it's hopeful to me in a way, because I don't think we hear often from men like both of you, that there are men, even if it's a small number, even if it's not huge, that there are men working away. The other thing I want to ask you about is how can women listening talk to the boys and men in our lives about all of these issues? So first on the hopeful thing, this is a movement, isn't it, that men are part of? It exists. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I've met a lot of really amazing positive role models, both men and women, in the last few years. Sadly, many of them on the men's side have only really started to had their eyes opened after personal tragedies. I think it's rare to come across a guy who's been able to see outside of, you know, their conditioning to actually recognise the issue against uh, men's violence against women and children without having had a personal experience. So people don't have time to engage in every every social issue, but it, it does seem that men's violence against women and girls is particularly underrepresented. Yeah, I guess in, in the second part, like how can you know, women listeners, you know, talk to, talk to their sort of men in their lives. Um, so I guess just from a personal experience again, so I am a strong believer that, you know, our father, he, he was a man who never took responsibility. He saw himself as strong in, as Jackson said, that very uh, cartoony way of strength, a very outdated vision of strength because he could control us and dominate us. But he had no strength or control of, of himself. He couldn't make sacrifices or he wouldn't make sacrifices. He wouldn't take on challenges. He wouldn't step out of his comfort zone. He wasn't living a, like a fulfilling life filled with challenge and excitement and growth and, and love. Like he was so focused on his narrow-minded view of what it means to be a man that he missed out on all the great things that life had to offer by being more open-minded and and I think Luke and I have learned from him that and also the way to talk to other men is, you know, this is really beneficial for men also. You know, if, if you can 
grow and to become a, a, a better leader, a, a live a more virtuous, fulfilling life, if you can use the traits within yourself to help yourself grow and others around you grow and flourish and, and thrive, you're going to have a much more enjoyable life as well as you're going to be tackling down the line, you know, violence against women and girls. Um, so it's not just selfish to address this and, and talk to boys about this. It will help them, be, you know, lead a life which they're, they're proud of. Jackson, what about you in terms of the movement? I want a bit of hope for women listening that this is something that's growing, that is engaged, men are, more men are engaging with this issue, that it is becoming more of a men's issue. Do you see that? Are you a kind of glass half full on that note? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, by the way, Ryan, so well said, uh, beautiful. What, what you've been saying all along, I mean, and, and, and in this conversation and others, I think it's so important and so helpful. So thank you for that. I mean, I think there is some generational change happening. I mean, I think we have a long, long road ahead of us, uh, but we're talking about undoing thousands, literally thousands of years of, you know, sort of patriarchal culture and conditioning and religious belief systems and educate and, and e economics structures and family structures that are all deeply woven into the fabric of our, you know, societies that because because if we're really honest with ourselves, again, this is not just about pathological individual monsters. This is about systemic forces that are producing abusive men. I mean, it's, it's not just about holding perpetrators accountable. It's also holding accountable a society that's producing those perpetrators. So we have to understand that we're part of a process as human beings. We're part of a long-term process. And that all of us hearing this and speaking in this you know, podcast are part of this long-term process. We're going we're gonna to meet our end at some point and the problems are still going to persist. And, and we have to know that. But I have to also say the, 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 the women-led movements, the multiracial, multi-ethnic, and global women-led movements against domestic and sexual violence that really accelerated starting in the 1970s and to the, to the present day are world-changing, have world-historical import. I'm writing a book right now about masculinities and violence, and I'm, and I'm connecting domestic and sexual violence to, you know, the insurrection and to, to you know, school shootings and, and, and you know, uh, urban, you know, firearm, you know, violence in the United States and knife crime in Ireland and Scotland and in the UK. It's all connected, but the domestic and sexual violence movements have given us so much insight into some of those connections, and yet very rarely are acknowledged for having done that. In other words, the contributions that these movements have made are rarely acknowledged in the public discourse. I'll give you another example. We're talking about men and young men and boys as the sexual, as sexual abuse victims and survivors. Men have been sexually abusing and assaulting other men for centuries and millennia, but only now in the past 15 or 20 years are we really, really talking about this and providing services to victims and survivors. Well, who are the first people to talk about men and boys as the victims of sexual abuse and sexual violence? It was feminist women in the 1970s who, who created and opened up the cultural space to talk about men's victimization. And yet, how many people give credit to feminist women and the battered women and sexual assault movements for opening up that cultural space for men as victims to become survivors? You're much more likely to hear... All the, you know, it's, it, you know, those women have been focusing on women, but what about the men? What about men's victimization? As if the two aren't directly connected and as if the people who open up the space weren't those feminist women. So I would say, keep doing what you're doing. I think we need more, more from men. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be critical of, of women. Obviously, I would be more uh, appreciative of the women's leadership and say, we need to build on that with men's leadership. And I would say with regard to 
what women who have men and boys in their lives, I mean, everybody has to make decisions about for themselves about how far to push people, you know, because a lot of women, for example, are worried that if they really come strongly at the men around them with, with a set of expectations, there's a potential for conflict and fracturing of those relationships. And, and, and I understand that. I, I do think it's important for women, if they want to, to take this, that there is a movement of men, whether it's whether it's activists or, you know, intellectuals, you know, the, the books that have been written, the films that have been produced. There's a there's a whole sort of over the past 30 years, this whole renaissance of writing about masculinities and violence and, and men's experiences in ways that are informed by feminist principles, but that are thoughtful about men's experience so that, so that you don't have to start from scratch. Like if you want to be, if you want your boys or your, your men in your lives to be exposed to this kind of stuff, you don't have to start figuring out for yourself. Oh, what do I say? It's like, go, do some research. There's a ton of really great stuff. I'll give, just give you one example. There's a film that I'm, that I was in, but I'm, you know, it's not my film, but I was in the film. It's called The Mask You Live In. And it was made by a woman named Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who happens to be the first partner of California. She's married to the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. It's called The Mask You Live In. It's about the cultural straitjackets that we raise boys in and, and how boys' emotional lives are, you know, attenuated and narrowed by these cultural sort of impositions. And this, it's, it's racially inclusive and ethnically diverse, as well as gender and sexually diverse in the, in the ways in which it talks about boys and men's experience and gives voice to those men across the spectrum of gender and sexual and racial and ethnic identity. That's an example, the mask you live in. There's a lot of good stuff out there. So I would say take advantage of what people have been doing and, 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 and use those resources and point to the men around you. Look, if you really care about addressing these issues, you should read this. You should watch this film and let's have a discussion. Uh, you don't have to start from scratch. You know, I listened to this thing on radio today with a victim speaking about being sexually abused by a man. And, you know, it, again, it was heartrending and everything. But you'd love at the end of every section like that on a radio program or a TV program, then they'd have a segment with men and women talking about why are men abusing women? How do we educate and socialize men? Why is domestic violence such an issue among men? Why do adult men sexually abuse children? And on and on and on. If we framed the conversation differently and really started to just constantly have that discussion, what a transformation that would be. It, it would be huge. I mean, I just want to sort of maybe both of you have a comment on that and then I've kept you long enough, but I'm, I'm so really grateful that you came on, especially on International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. It's not called Male Violence Against Women, but essentially it should be, Jackson. But yeah, I mean, we just need to reframe this conversation so badly, don't we? We do. And 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 I think, I do think that there's there's some reason for hope. I mean, there's good reasons for hope. I think, I think there are a whole lot of young men who have been coming of age in the last, you know, couple of generations who have grown up with, for example, feminist mothers and, and who have been influenced by the changes that have been happening in the culture in both in race and ethnicity and sexuality and gender identity and everything else. There's a, there's a more open sort of welcoming spirit. I have to say there's also a backlash and there's a growing movement here in the United States and obviously in throughout parts of Europe where a lot of young men, including, you know, young white men are reacting against the challenges to their cent cultural centrality and are joining, you know, far right wing movements and fascist movements that are threatened by democracy. They're threatened by women's rights. They're threatened by um, the LGBTQ revolution. And so they're organizing and, and, and causing lots of problems. And I, and I don't mean to 
downplay that in any way. But I do think that there is a shift happening. I think the reason why the, the right has been rising in response is because of the forward progress that we're making. And there's, there's people who are decentered. And I think, I do think we need to provide an articulate narrative that men, including white men, can be part of the positive changes that are happening. Because if they only see themselves as the source of all the problems in the world, and they're hearing that constantly, white men are bad, toxic masculinity, all that, which again, I'm not, I'm not denying that there are, there's reality behind that. But if all they're hearing is that from the progressive side of the house, and they're hearing from the you know, the conservative side of the house that we embrace you, we, we love you, you're, you're the most, you're the backbone of our civilization. It's understandable that there, that many of those men are going to get drawn into participating in movements that are trying to suppress democracy and suppress all the positive movement that we've had over the past you know, couple of generations. So I think, I think it is, there is reason for hope, but I think we, we have to, we have to step up our game. And as I've said throughout the course of this conversation, we need more men who are willing to take some steps that might be a little bit uncomfortable to begin with. And I think we need to learn from from women's experience. We need to check in with women. We need to be accountable to women. But at the same time, it's not fair to women to be the ones who are trying to make every decision for what men are supposed to do. I think women have been clear for decades that what they need men to do is educate and organize and politicize other men. You know, white people need to work in white communities and educate and politicize other white people against racism, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that complicated conceptually. What's what's a little more difficult personally and interpersonally is we're we're asking people to take some risks, but that's okay. And 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 you know, look 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 what Ryan's doing. I mean, look at he can't be comfortable, but he's. I mean, it's a difficult subject matter. It's difficult personally, emotionally, but you know what? Let's just do it. And I think we if we if we have that spirit, I think a, a, an awful lot can change. And the changes that have to happen will change more quickly if we have a critical mass of men who are willing to join the women who are honestly the locomotive of cultural and historical transformation. But a critical mass of men joining those women will be the tipping point. Ryan, a hopeful note from you, please, at the end. I mean, this is a, a movement that's growing and this critical mass might not, we might not be there yet, but we're definitely in that direction and we're on a path that hopefully there's no going back from. Yeah, like um, I think Jackson said it early on, like we can't expect transformational change overnight. And I think... That's what I wanted immediately after losing my mom Charlotte. You know, I wanted, I was filled of anger, I was filled of this like rage, like, you know, this needs to stop here and now. Uh, but realistically, things take time, especially when it's a social conditioning issue, when it's, it won't be for generations until we start seeing the fruits of our labor. And I think we have to accept small victories. That's something I've had to learn is, you know, take, take the small victories, incremental goals. And as long as we're working towards the right goals on the right path, you can, you can feel proud. You can feel like you're doing the right thing. You're going in the right direction. Well, I think that's a great note to end it. I am really so grateful to both of you for coming on. It's been a really wide ranging conversation. I think it's something we haven't done on the podcast before, but I know I feel that our mostly female listenership will really appreciate it. And it might allow them to have conversations with the men in their lives that they might not have had. So we'll, we'll check back in with you again. I think we definitely have to have you both on again. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you both very much, Jackson and Ryan. Thank you so much, Roisin. Thank you. That's all we have time for. Thanks very much to Jackson Katz and Ryan Hart. And do let us know 
what you thought about that conversation by getting in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. And just to let you know as well, it's the end of food month soon and we're going to have a very special bonus episode on Monday with the wonderful Grace Dent. You'll know her as a very prominent British restaurant reviewer and also writer. So she's just fantastic and we're really glad to welcome her. That's a special bonus episode on Monday. But until then, that's it for me. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.